Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, like psychologists will sort of refer to human beings as, you know, people are like this, you know, sort of implicitly acknowledging there's a, there's a sort of an underlying human nature that we all share. But then naturally, there are sort of these individual differences. Well, this is like a case where, like, yes. to me, it's very straightforward, <laughs> where every, you know, 16 year old in America should be given a free SAT. I've had many, uh, just personally, uh, academics, full professors that are very established in their fields privately contact me asking about uh, job openings, about, you know, the, the, yeah, the future of the institution, reconsidering whether they want to, you know, remain in their position or move. And it's been, yeah, to me, it's been actually shocking to see just like the, the scale of this of just how many people are interested in this. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today, we're speaking with Rob Henderson, our first returning guest, a social scientist, and a PhD candidate at Cambridge. We discuss evolutionary psychology, universal liberalism, or liberal universalism, and most importantly, our time at the new University of Austin, or UATX. It's always interesting meeting these new people and then meeting them along the way in a completely different context, and this was no exception. And, of course, we reflected on it uh, around one month later and had a great time doing so. As a note, these past few episodes, the past three, have had a bit more casual and upbeat tone. This was a bit in reaction to my podcasts with Malcolm Cheyune and uh, Freddie DeBoer, which had a much more serious and even dark tone to them. Well, now's your chance to let me know which one you prefer, and you can always do that by going on the Substack comments, or uh, reaching out on Twitter, or by leaving a review. Hopefully a very positive one. And, you know, whichever way those preferences lie, I'll hope to be able to at least change that kind of quality, right? change the presentation of the show uh, to best match whatever you guys most prefer. I always want to make sure that people are hopeful, but at the same time, that they're realistic about the problems that lay in front of them. That being said, UATX was an incredibly interesting institution, and I'm quite hopeful for them in the future, even if I have uh, substantial ideological or, uh, or practical criticisms of how they're doing their work. And you can read much more about that, uh, both in Rob's article and other uh, articles that I link below. Without further ado, here's Rob Henderson. Yeah, so the reason why I have you on is that, uh, is that a month ago we were chilling in Texas. And, you know, why were we chilling in Texas? Yeah, so, so why were we in Texas? We were there, we were in, well, we were in, in Dallas for the University of Austin or the UATX <laughs> Forbidden Courses Summer Program. Uh, yeah, we were at Old Parkland in Dallas. Uh, we were, you know, I was, I was teaching a course there. You were a student and yeah, it was, a it was, a, a very busy week, I think for both of us. Yeah, man, to all, to all of the people who have not, who have not read the self docs post, right? Every, everyone on Twitter thought I was like 30 something, right? Everyone thought I was like Yarvin's age or something, but no, no, I'm, I'm much younger than that. But, yeah, well, you know, we it was interesting at... how you and I met. Uh, yeah. Well, so we were in line, like, I think Sunday night at the, the dinner event, you know, the sort of inaugural dinner for the program. 
and you came up to me and said, hi, like we knew each other. And I look at you and I'm like, you know, I didn't know who you were. I, I knew you by your, uh, your, your pseudonym, your Twitter name. Um, yeah. But then I'll, I look at you like, hey, you know, just being friendly, figure, you know, I was a student saying hi to me. And then you told me like, you know, you, that you're Cactus Chew. And I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Because I think you and I had literally just talked like two or three weeks before that. Um, and yeah, I, I had no idea you were an undergrad. I had no idea that you were uh, as young as you are. Yeah, I think part of that is also, this is something that I think a lot of people have misconceptions for. People like want to seem older. And then they read like people who are older, they'll read like Lauren Summers or something. And you know, like, I don't have anything specific against Lauren Summers. But like Lauren Summers doesn't sound like Lauren Summers, because he reads himself, right? He reads like people who are even older. So I'm like constantly reading like, man, I try to engage mm-hmm. in like, not internet politics, I try to engage in like, serious, like, long, really long term, like political texts. And I think if you read those, then you sound like an old man. <laughs> Right. And so I think like when I'm writing, uh, aside from when I'm writing about tech or something like that, right, a lot of my a lot of those much older influences come out. And so I seem like I'm much older than I actually am. Yeah, yeah, that that's interesting. I think there's some truth to that. It, uh, what you expose yourself to what you tend to consume on a day to day basis, text and audio and yeah, just that, that sort of immersion in whatever, yeah, whether it's more intellectual or more sort of focused on the the events of the day or pop culture or something. I mean, yeah, that makes sense for like, to me, I, I sort of understood like why I, I might have thought you were older. And yeah, yeah, it was an interesting surprise. I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've had some of those 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 interactions myself where people assume that I'm older for whatever reason. And I think, yeah, maybe some of it has to do with just the content that they see you producing and consuming and the ideas that you tend to talk about. And yeah, people just naturally assume that you're, you know, somehow older or more mature or something than than your actual age. Yeah, something that I was actually talking to another UATX student about yesterday was there are a shocking few millennial uh, millennial uh, especially younger millennial uh, pundits, right? There just aren't many people your age who are like talking about politics a lot. Is that true? I mean, yeah. so who's a, I mean, what is millennial? What's the cutoff for millennial? Like 1980, 1981? Is that right? Do you know? It's right there, the right? I think the cutoff is 1995. So it might be like 75 right. to 95. No, it's not 75. That's that's too, that's still that's still pretty firmly Gen X, I think. Um, 20 I years say, now? Yeah, 80, that's that's a long i 80 mean 2000 maybe okay is that i think that's too long right because well what is the the boomers are like 45 to 65 okay that's 20 ish years something like that yeah i mean oh well, yeah if, if you want to google but but yeah i, I mean I, I would have guessed like the, the elder millennials some people think i'm an elder millennial i think i'm like a middle millennial uh i'm 32 but i think the elder millennials are like 40 like that's sort of the yeah, like nineteen eighty ish, nineteen eighty one. Are there not like people around that age, like in their thirties and forties, who are pundits? Um, how old's Ben Shapiro? You know, like isn't he like it's like the biggest pundit ben on the right? He's Shapiro uh, age. He's, he's, he's always like come off to me 40. like an actor to me. Born nineteen eighty four. Yeah, Ben Shapiro okay. is a millennial man. Yeah, so that's what thirty eight ish. Yeah, I mean he's you know he's in the millennial camp. I mean I don't know who uh, Michael Knowles. I don't know. I'm just thinking of like Daily Wire people. They're probably all like you know uh, uh, mid to to late millennials, like older. I mean so 
What about on the left? I mean, I, yeah, I'm not like super up on on political pundits, but is that I mean, I feel like the you know, there's there's a pretty, pretty large contingent of of young ish people who are into politics. Huh, really? OK. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize Ben Shapiro was so young. Ben Shapiro has always seemed like very at least extra to me. Right. <laughs> and of I course, mean, if it, you look well, at his philosophy, it's like a free boomer philosophy. Well, is that is is it the be, be, for the same reason that people assume that you're older than your age, or maybe I'm older than my age? Is just like if you talk about certain topics, people naturally assume that you're older. Do you think that's that has something to do with it? Yeah, I guess. But the thing is, there's been there's been revolution in what's talked about, right? That's the whole kind of IDW. That's like the UATX stuff, right? It's a new it's a new frontier of debate. And yeah, hmm. the people who are creating the new frontier of debate, they're not like millennials, right? If anything, the millennials are like fitting into like this older mold of politics. Uh, there are Zoomers, uh, and that makes sense, right? But it's also a lot of Xers. This is the this is the like Eric Weinstein thing, right? It's the Xers and their children who refuse to be screwed over by another generation. Who are the Xers' children? Is that the uh, that's the Zoomers? Zoomers. Yeah, it's it's two generations. Uh. Yeah. Oh, right. So the millennials are the children of the boomers and mm-hmm. the, oh, I see how, okay, interesting. Yeah, that's why there's so and many so of them. The zoomers are, so after 1995, basically, yeah. 95, 96, something like that. So all the young, so then is there a large political punditry among those? I mean, Zoom, yeah, it's kind of young. I mean, you know, the, the, literally like the oldest zoomers would be the only ones involved in politics, but are there many Zoomers or like people on TikTok and stuff who yeah, are talking um, about political issues? Aaron Sabarium. I was actually talking about this yesterday. Aaron Sabarium, oh, right. Ralph Avora, yeah, uh, Ricky right. Schlott. They're like they're they're all they're all like New York Post writers. Or Aaron Sabarium's not, I guess. But like mm. yeah. Um Helena Helena I forget her last name, the detransitioner girl, right? Like mm. there's a lot of like there's a lot of like IDW Zoomers. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, is well, is that like a back? I, I don't know. It just seems like generally the Zoomers are very politically involved. Like all of the campus controversies and everything that erupted. I mean, a lot of that stuff launched around like 2013 and later 2015 at Yale. And those were, I guess, like those were sort of like very either very um, like sort of borderline millennials or Zoomers. And so, yeah, it just seems like I guess a more politically uh, engaged or energized uh, group, whether on the right or the left or IDW or or whatever else is, you know, between those things. Whereas the millennials, yeah, I guess there is like there's maybe more of a like, well, this was also the Gen X thing too, right? Just sort of being checked out from politics, like not being that interested in it, thinking it was for old people or something. And now among young people, it's like it's it's uncool to not be interested in politics. If you say you're not a political, people think there's something wrong with you. Whereas I think like 15 or 20 years ago, or especially in the 90s too, that you know, being a political person, you were seen as like uptight or a nerd or just just uncool. Wait, so in in your in your experience, people see you as weird for being non political or apolitical? Um, well, not, I mean, in my experience, I, I guess I mean personally, yeah, I'm not super interested in politics in itself. But I mean, I think when I was growing up and when I was in my like, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but yeah, like late teens, early 20s, this was only like, yeah, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, yeah, politics just wasn't a, a thing. I mean, I was in high school during the the Bush era and 
yeah, I mean, you just didn't hear like that many, like the teachers, you know, a lot of the teachers were like, you know, anti-war, but like pro-troops and like, you know, that whole thing. Um, whereas like the students just didn't give a fuck. Like they didn't care about politics. They didn't care about like, you know, 9-11 or terrorism. It just wasn't on our radar. Um, yeah, yeah, that's not the yeah, thing I'm asking thing. about because for me, okay. it's largely the same. I'm saying like you're, 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 you're saying now that like people or like young people are, are skeptical of you or are distrusting of you if you're apolitical, right? Oh, right. Yes. Yes. I think that's generally true now. Yeah. If you say like, really? you don't have a side okay, or you don't have a team, I think like people, well, I think now that codes as like, well, it depends on the circles you're in, right? Like if you're in academia or something like that, I think if you say you're not interested in politics, people just code you as like, you know, weirdo libertarian or conservative or something. Um, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, that's, Man, that's kind of how that, the that loyalty goes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, if you don't like openly express support, then you must be, you know, you must be suspect. That's okay. Like I have, I don't know, maybe Canada is just on a lag, but I, I've not experienced that. I've not really experienced that as I'm at MIT either. That's the, mm. that's the American school I visit the most. MIT is also like pretty apolitical. Uh, I guess it's like mm. STEM humanities still. Yeah, yeah I persists. think they, uh, well, social sciences, <laughs> humanities, it's a little worse. Uh, um, yeah, so so yeah, that, that, to me, that makes sense that MIT would be less political. And I don't know, I don't know that much about Canada. But at least like my interactions with undergrads at places like Yale and Cambridge and, you know, these these kinds of schools. Um, yeah, politics is very in vogue. That's, that's actually quite interesting to me, because <laughs> did you did you find that I mean, when you were having your discussions at the UATX summer program uh, back in June, did you like what were your experiences like with the with the students? So you you and I had like I mean, we were both there. We were both, um, you know, involved in the program as an instructor and as a student. But we had different experiences in terms of like what our day to day interactions look like. You were probably talking to the students a lot of the time, right? Like what did you yeah. find that was similar versus different? Like, yeah, just like the kind of a compare and contrast, like what it was like for you at, at your school in Canada versus uh, versus the summer program in terms of, you know, how open people were about politics and their views and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, so Waterloo is kind of an extreme outlier. That's my university in Canada. It's, the, the closest analog is MIT, but it's like MIT, but even more so. It's basically only well known for its technical, for its technical programs, especially software engineering, uh, some material engineering as well, you know, World of Atoms stuff. But there's basically no humanities program there. There are a few courses I think there's like technically there's like one like faculty of arts that contains like everything. Right. And most of that is just like people who are supplying like basically like elective courses for students who are in like the math or the natural sciences or the engineering departments. There's like very little like there's very little uh, social science or humanities at all. And all of the social mm. science courses are also in the faculty of arts. It, it's all like contained in that. It's like one like, gigantic thing uh and i i say gigantic but there are actually like not that many faculty there right so it's, mm. it's this like extreme outlier all of the people who are interested in influencing basically politics they're going to go to the university of toronto i think i was one university of toronto student at uatx as well and uh yeah like 
the amount of polarization just towards STEM and towards basically like people who don't care about politics is extremely high there. So everyone is just apolitical. There, I think I, I've had like more conversation. Like the most common political topic is literally like effective altruism, right? Hmm. It's like, yeah, it's it, it's what you would expect from from like like the most extreme caricature of MIT but even more so and it's really quite wonderful but mm. i don't know i can just kind of i can just kind of go and i i mean i talk about politics because one of my big things is that like tech people don't care enough about politics right so i'll i'll talk about politics and i'll talk about like pretty like not extreme in the kind of like in the kind of political sense but like extreme as in questioning a lot of basic assumptions that people have oh maybe like maybe like revolutionary radical might be a better term but I'll, I'll talk about like pretty like uh revolutionary politics and like no one will really care like there are people hmm. who who get like very enthusiastic about it, and I'm like, okay, cool, let's like work on X Y Z project together, sure. Uh, but like, mo- no one is going to get like super offended that, for example, I say like we should institute like IQ tests almost everywhere, almost all of the time, <laughs> which was something I said a yeah. lot at UATX as well. Uh, what, what was the uh, what was the re- so so you, so at Waterloo, no one cared when you made statements like that. Did people at UATX? How did they react when you would say we should institute? IQ tests or questions like that. Yeah, they were like really engaged, right? I think a lot of people there are just self-selected for caring about politics, right? This is actually a very interesting difference that someone told me about the second half. The second half, right? There, are, uh, people told me that there were much more more kind of factional differences, right? Like the classical liberals and libertarians and the conservatives and like the socialists. They they all like split up into groups. Right. Whereas in ours, oh, they were like, obviously people, yeah, you know, in, I, I'm pretty sure, like, I don't know if you noticed the same thing, but for ours, like, there was a lot more you know, intermixing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so we're talking about here. So the, we were there for the first week, the, the, the overall program was two weeks. You know, there was week one where there were, you know, certain instructors and a class and the students, and then, and then they were broken up into week two, where there was a, another group of instructors brought in with a new batch of students. So the first week where you and I were there, I did notice a lot of intermixing, a lot of, uh, you know, sharp and friendly debate. Uh, But it sounds like from what you've heard in week two, they were they were sort of uh, isolating themselves and and clustering into their own, you know, their own favorite cliques based on their political views, which is kind of not what we wanted, right? So yeah, I wouldn't say isolating, like they're all in the same room still from from what I've been told. But yeah. there were, yeah, there were just a lot more in-group discussions. Okay, yeah, I like, see. I think it's actually better to go from like what I was expecting to what what I did not get. Right, I was expecting basically like all of the Substack writers and all of the Anon posters, right? Because I know, I know of the existence of a ton of like Zoomer Substack writers and Anon posters. And I was like, man, all these people—they're all going to come to UATX because that's ah. uh, that's the kind of like new thing. That's like the the bat signal for all of the Anon posters. And, you know, like, there was one, and not even in my week, right? There was one, like, a non-poster. There was another, like, poster who wasn't a non, right? Who was just, like, a public poster, right? Who who was also in the other week, right? Like, the closest thing in our week was, like, this guy who writes about crypto, right? Hmm. Uh, Which which is cool. Like, that's not a a bad thing, right? But Hmm. I don't know, like, where are all the Substack writers? (laughs) 
Yeah, well, I think you may be overestimating Substack writers online. I think you know maybe maybe in your uh, in your circle, right? Like in 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 the the circles that you're you're in, you may know a lot of people who who write and do the kind of are interested in the same same topics as you. But I think like you know the sort of the typical uh, Zoomer, the sort of you know the 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 you know who's who's uh, you know listens to Barry Weiss's podcast or who's um, you know, mom forwards them something retweeted by, I don't know, Neil Ferguson or something like that. Like, you know, th- th- there's just like, there's a much larger pool of, of people who are like, just have this sort of like casual cursory interest in, you know, politics and stuff. And yeah, I think like there's still, you know, there, there's just not that many substackers co- uh, compared to just regular people, right? Regular, regular young people who are in college. Um yeah, I mean, I did. I, I do know like a couple of people who were interested, who reached out to me, who were asking about it, who. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the program overall, um, I mean, my impression was that the students really liked it and got a lot out of it. I mean, I, I think like for I, I, I asked a few students about this, like whether it how it how it aligned or what what what. Um, yeah how it aligned with their expectations. Did it, did it not, did it, did it fail to meet them? And, and almost everyone said it either met or exceeded. I don't know anyone who was actually disappointed with, with what they experienced in their, in their program, which was, uh, I mean, it was, that was, that was a good sign. Yeah. So, so let's give a brief kind of recap for, for the audience. Like, what were you, what were you teaching about at UATX? Yeah, I was teaching a course called the psychology of social status and yeah, so we went through uh, you know, early on in the week. We went through some some classic uh, you know sociological texts on status uh, from Bordeaux, from from Fablin, from Paul Fussell, and some others. And we also read uh, some more recent uh, you know, modern contemporary authors. Um, uh, yeah, just just about status. So, so there's a book called The Status Game by a journalist called Will Store, and he did a pretty good job, I think, summarizing a bunch of interesting empirical work in psychology. And so we read some excerpts from that. We read Agnes Callard, who wrote a, an interesting article called uh, Who Wants to Play the Status Game? Um, who else did we read that first week? Yeah, I mean, so 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 that was yeah. And then we focused later on on uh, empirical psychology research over the last couple of years. Uh, who's interested in obtaining status? Why is it important to people? Is it a fundamental need? Uh, individual differences in the motives and the drives to obtain it. And then towards the end of the week, we covered some um, uh, some 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 work on the class system in America, the status system. And how you know, sort of the the education system and and social and cultural mores contribute to a lot of the divisions that we're seeing now. So that's that's a sort of a snapshot of um, of what we went through. And yeah, I, one one thing that was interesting is that I started each class with a question, uh, in part just to you know help everyone to get to know each other better, and and also for my own interest. One question that I asked. Uh, which I wrote about it in a recent op-ed, which was um, how many of the students out of the, so there were 10 students in the class. I asked how many of you have withheld a social or political opinion uh, for fear of ostracism or retribution, you know, either from the students or from faculty or the administration at their home institutions. And out of 10 students, nine of them raised their hands, which is about what you would expect if you read some of the surveys of undergrads, at least in the U.S., 
uh, there is there was there's a large spike in. I mean, it's already it was already like pretty high. And in, in 2020, there was a survey that 60 percent of American undergrads said they they engaged in regular self censorship. And in 2021, it had jumped to 82 percent. Uh, in my class, it was 90 percent. Um, so I think there is like a a, a major a major issue like uh, with with people withholding their their views for you know, a variety of reasons. Yeah, and I think I, I think especially if you're someone who has kind of uh, center right or even just like center left views, you're gonna be you're gonna be more and you actually like believe in those views. They're they're not just like politics as fashion, right? You're you're yeah. gonna have to do a lot more self censoring. So there's some kind of selection effect there as well. Although I do wonder, like, if there is some, yeah, like, even the center left thing, I mean, I, I think a lot of, there's just a ton of preference falsification going on. I mean, I've, I've had two recent interactions like, w- within the last two days, honestly, like, there's one today and one, yeah, was it the day before yesterday or something? Yeah. Uh, where, so one was with uh, a journalist at a prominent outlet, and the other one was with an academic at, uh, you know, an elite institution. And both of them, I think, identify as center left, like reasonable center left liberals. But then they would they casually use the word fascism to describe, uh, you know, I think like like a very sort of moderate uh, policy positions. <laughs> and so I wonder, like, like uh, you know, I, I think like one person, I, I mean, I don't know, just um, I, I can't remember the specific examples, but they they use this term. Well, well, to this person, one one person used the term and then immediately retracted, saying, "Oh, maybe I shouldn't use that word. It's a little strong." But uh, this person used it in such a way that it indicated that they were used to using that word, uh, and they were only retracting it because they were in conversation with me, and they know that I'm like maybe not necessarily a, a fellow traveler in their politics, or at least like in the same circles that they run in, right? And so I think like there is uh, on the right and the left, um, a lot of this, uh, yeah, just the language that people speak, the terms that they use, what they denigrate, what, what words they use to, to uh, you know, ridicule, ridicule different things is, is, is different. Like, yeah, I never really hear the word fascism used, but, but uh, yeah, lately I've been hearing it uh, more and more, mostly yeah, by well, center-left people. Right. Because they're kind of they're kind of self censoring around you, even though you don't have any kind of ability to. Yeah, I have no like institutional campaign, power, right? but I think yeah. like I think people on the you know people who are center left who view themselves as reasonable and will interact with different kinds of people, you know, I think like even if they don't really believe that something is fascism, if you're around people who are maybe on the hard left, and those are like I mean you know if you're in journalism and academia, you'll meet people like that. And those kinds of people will use the term fascism to describe, you know, basic, you know, rules and structure. <laughs> and so if and then, and then you sort of absorb that, right, just through, you know, the sort of, you know, being in that, that environment, the kind of homophily there, and uh, you will use the same terms, even even just sort of, um, uh, even if you're not around those people anymore, right, you just sort of adopt the language of your your peer group, the sort of basic peer effects. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Like to me, that was like maybe not necessarily an insight into what they actually believed, but it was an insight into just like the kinds of terminology that's used in, um, you know, in, in in journalism and academia among like more sort of hard left people in in an environment where they don't think that you know anyone disagrees with them. Yeah, I think that what's happening there is that you know, like a lot of people are just conformists, and this is this is pretty invariant across time. Right. A lot of people blame wokeness for this kind of, you know, self-censorship. And to me, 
like you you have tons of self censorship just at any point in time always right whether it's the religious right whether it's uh the red scare or you know it just goes back and forth and a lot of people actually Mark Andreessen had this amazing tweet which was like most people are other people right and and i remember like a while <laughs> okay. while before that right he said basically like there are there are at most one million people in the world. I can't imagine that all of you are like real people, right? <laughs> and I find that just like okay. very funny. And it's also kind of true, right? Like if you actually just say like what percentage of people are like actually producing original ideas and you just add those percentages all together, like yeah, I think that's about right. There are around like one million like original people in the world. And then like everyone is like some some large part of them are like not even like derivative, right? Derivative is okay. Like it's okay to have like a school of thought that kind of inspires you and then you build something off of it, right? Yeah. And it's not even that. It's like literally they're like, they're like, there's no like thinking there. They're just like taking the thing and they're just repeating it. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, yeah, most people are um, yeah conformist. People want to get along. I mean, that's that's part of our nature for the most part. I mean, there's some individual variation, but generally speaking, everyone wants to be liked, especially by the people they interact with the most or the people they work around. Um, I mean, I've noticed something that 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 happens with clever people, though, who I think there's almost like this desire to counter signal against whatever try people um uh assign to you or or even that you're you know that you're that you're straightforwardly a part of i mean i've seen this with people on on the right who i think they get this like interesting or they get they, they get this thrill out of being sort of unique or interesting in their political views i mean like the an obvious example that comes to mind is when roe v wade was recently overturned like there were these like smart people on the right who were like you know, I mean, it's almost like that's that sort of uh, that, that meme about like the conservative case for and it's like, you know, some some leftist position. But like, yeah, there were there were smart people I knew on the right who were saying like, yeah, abortion's a good thing because of, you know, whatever, like uh, reducing the welfare roles or with, uh, I don't know, like concerns around intelligence and IQ or those kinds of things. And I don't even necessarily know if they all believed it, but I think like there were they, they experienced this glee out of like, yeah, OK, you, you align me with the right, but I'm I'm a, I'm pro abortion, too. And so I think like there's that danger for clever people who who don't want to be um, thought of as a sheep and they take like weird positions on purpose just to just to signal that they're extra clever. Uh, is the person you're talking about perhaps a former former guest on the show? Um, I I don't know. <laughs> I mean, oh, probably not, actually. No, the person I that, that came to mind, there were a couple of different people. But what, I mean, yeah, they they I don't think they're public figures or anything. So so probably not. Oh, okay, and and actually, no, I I feel fine mentioning him because he 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 won't mind this. But like you know, like a while back, like Richard Richard Hanania had this tweet that was like, if, if we if we allow states to to choose their own abortion policies, I wonder what will happen to the rate of Down syndrome. Oh yeah, in in red states yeah. specifically. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that. That was that was a that was last that was a year ago. Crazy. That was a time flies. But yeah, I, I remember that tweet. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know what. Well, like you know, like I don't want to read Richard's <laughs> mind or anything. But like there are yeah that that style of you know yeah you may think I'm on the right or I mean is it on the I mean yeah maybe some people on the left do it too. Nothing immediately comes to mind. But just people who are aware that most people are conformists and they don't want to be. Like that's their number one fear is to not be seen as like a sheep or something. And so they like start taking all of these 
you know, interesting or unique positions, borrowing from the other side or something, just just to seem like they're, you know, uh, you, you'll never figure me out, that kind of thing. Yeah, but it, it's pretty it's pretty interesting to me, at least. I mean, you had some very interesting ideologies at UATX. Like, what do you think of just like the milieu in general, like the people you're talking to? Uh, yeah, I mean, th- there were a couple of students who observed that it was um, not as uh, um, uh, the word is escaping me, but just that the word it wasn't as uniform as you would expect in terms of like, I, I think like the, Wait, why most would you expect it to be uniform? Yeah, I, I think they wanted they they uh, there was this expectation that it would either be like sort of, you know, Ben Shapiro fans and maybe some like IDW people. And that would be like the the demographic that that this kind of program would attract. But there was like a, a, a fairly broad range of different political views of yeah, people who were on the center left and people who, um, you know, what, like people who listen to, to the New York Times, the daily podcast, but then they also like Joe Rogan, you know, they had like a, you know, those kinds of people, too. So, uh, yeah, I guess I was impressed with the uh, the diverse array of, of, of students that it attracted. And yeah, I think just, uh, yeah, generally everyone was, was switched on and, and involved. And, you know, when I was an undergrad, I went to programs like this. Like I went to, uh, what they call like the summer honors program at AEI and, you know, these kinds of things. And, and it, I think it's always like, uh, I mean, that was AEI, right? So like pretty much everyone there was, uh, was on the right. There were like a couple of, of people who who weren't but but generally speaking it attracted like one kind of student this one i wasn't sure what it would what, like what kind of person it would attract but um yeah yeah it was a, it was uh you know politically or intellectually diverse which is uh, i think what we wanted yeah the, the sheer like variance that was something that was very interesting you had anywhere from like your trad cats to your like pretty pretty left-wing progressives right it was it was kind of <laughs> I didn't know. Like it was probably closer to to the median. Uh, it was closer to the median voter than mm. I think a lot of a, a lot of events that I've been to, because yeah, like I don't know. The the thing is, like it was it was close. The median was probably around the same, but the variance was just crazy, right? Yeah, you had a yeah, lot that's of a good point on, on both extremes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but I don't know. It was, it was quite interesting. Yeah, we saw that with uh, when Peter Bogosian did his um, workshop on changing minds or something. And, you know, he had people line up like he had like like basically like a, a Likert scale on the floor and asked people, you know, how much do you agree with, you know, whatever politically contentious issue it was. And yeah, there was like, yeah, I think an even split with students on both sides of this, you know, very much disagree versus very much agree. And there was like slight movements here and there. But yeah, I was um, I was intrigued by this that, uh, yeah, there was a wider uh, range of, of interesting students who had like, yeah, yeah, exactly. The, 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 the variance was 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 quite high. And yeah, I mean, there were normies, too. I mean, you know, I, I probably like most students were like, you know, normie or normie adjacent regular people who, you know, just are have normie a, have adjacent. A, yeah, normie adjacent, you know, funny. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, yeah, people who aren't like, like super into politics, who's like, don't, don't uh, make it their whole life. Um, which I think is like healthy, right? Like, yeah, I consider myself like somewhat of a normie politically is just like, I think it's, it's unhealthy to be like, just, just, uh, you know, consuming politics, political stuff nonstop. It can be, you know, very, very demoralizing. Um, or I mean like, yeah, there's interesting, um, uh, 
articles now coming out by journalists. There was one recently in the Washington Post about how like a lot of journalists aren't reading the news anymore. Like they'll they'll produce the news, but they won't consume it uh, because they themselves are getting like burned out and they they feel just like 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 literally like psychological and physical effects of like you know, negativity sells. And so if you open up your your phone, like every time you open your screen and it's like, you know, you have your New York Times app, your Wall Street Journal app, your Bloomberg app, and it's all about how, what the economy is tanking and, you know, whatever Russia did and what's going on with Pelosi and Taiwan. It's just like endless, uh, you know, alarming headlines. Um, so journalists themselves, many of them seem to be switching off. I don't know how, like how how broad this pattern is, or how how big this trend is, but but it seems to be like a lot of people are sort of recognizing that that a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, we need to we need to dial, dial it back a bit in our in our own personal lives. Yeah, and it's, there's two steps to this, right? One is to dial it up, or one is to dial it down in your personal life and what you consume. And the second one, which might not necessarily follow, is that you should dial it down in what impact it has on your basic on your political views, right? You should you should receive less signal. You should turn down the impact of uh, whatever these news sources are saying, right? Because mm. a lot of people, a lot of people, they they give a lot of validity to that. They kind of outsource their thinking to that. And so, like, I, I don't know if that second part will follow. Uh, it will be mm-hmm. very interesting if it does. That's basically like reducing the reducing the information coefficient uh, in in these press networks, right? Which I mean, it's already hyper connected. It's already like you know every every kind of Washington Post story, like if it's impactful, it'll go around to all the other news outlets already anyway. But you know, is slowing down that a little bit? Is that probably a good thing o- on balance? Yes. I uh, I wrote this review a uh, f- few months ago of uh, the book called Sadly Porn by the blogger uh, formerly known as The Last Psychiatrist. I don't think he blogs under that, that uh, pseudonym anymore. Uh, but throughout that book, he keeps referring to people's phones as their teleprompters. And the first couple of times I encountered it, I was like, what is he talking? Like, why is he calling the phone the teleprompter? And then, you know, by the third or fourth time I read it, I'm like, oh, I get what he's saying, which is that basically everyone is being told what to say by their phone, right? You pull out your phone and, you know, here's the opinion that you're assigned for this day by this outlet. Here's the acceptable (laughs) position to hold about X, Y, Z. And I've seen it happen, like literally like, you know, that that morning someone will send me an article uh, about whatever the, the 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 news of the day is, and then um, you know I'll be at a meeting three hours later, and like someone brings it up, and then like everyone starts talking about the same thing and holding the same opinion about. It. I've seen this happen. It's it's fascinating, honestly, uh, because you know the people I see are ostensibly very bright, right? Academic types, whatever. But that's uh, <laughs> often I think you find like less uh, less um, diversity of opinions among highly educated people who are who are sort of news junkies than you do among people who who do um, try to withdraw as much as possible from from all the media stuff. I mean, I see it predominantly as like the midwit class. You know, I talked about this with uh, Malcolm Cheyune, who was on the show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like when you have this scenario where basically people are trying to overfit, right? Like they, they kind of don't have the inherent competence to, to climb up to a higher level, but they still want to do it. Like, how are you going to do that? You're going to, you're going to select for conformity. And so there's going to be this, this effect that becomes much more prominent there, as opposed to someone who just doesn't care, you know, mm. and, and maybe works in a job where they don't have to care. And I think that's probably much healthier for them. Yeah, which I think is um, one of the things that I've noticed happening with uh, with Substack is that uh, 
I think they're like the fact that it's exploded and that people are actually like, you know, I mean, I mean, uh, power laws kind of rule everything on the Internet now, but th- people are like finding ways to build an audience, uh, even if it's a niche audience or whatever, like people are finding ways to reach out to people and connect with people writing about interesting things. Uh, to the point where multiple smart people have told me, and I've experienced this myself, that they no longer read the op-ed pages of legacy media outlets, right? Like yeah, of course. A, a, lot, a lot of smart people, oh, like, you know, they, they'd visit it the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. never read the op-ed pages of legacy news outlets. Mm. Like, the opinion is, like, I mean, you can argue as well that, like, the not it's not just the opinion that's opinion, right? But, like, reading like opinion pieces for legacy outlets, unless there's someone who like you specifically care about, right. Specifically who is like an outlier and has interesting stuff to say. I'm thinking of Ross Douthat here. Right. But unless you have that kind of like personal look, right. If you look at the selection effects for, for legacy outlets, like their opinion pages are, are like, noise with like some selection for conformism which if you're operating in the real world right if you're like running a business is literally the opposite of what you want to do right it is literally the opposite of like something valuable <laughs> yeah i mean well well my, my my point was that before i mean i guess you could have always had blogs but for whatever reason like substack People, I mean, the branding and the audience building and the trust that they've established and so forth, uh, people are willing to um, to open a random Substack that they've never heard of and, and give it a chance. Whereas, like, if you just sent someone, like, someone's random website with, you know, a, an essay there, I think, like, a lot of people would have been reluctant uh, to, to read it. Um, and so... So, yeah, I mean, now Substacks, I think, have sort of replaced the, at least for many people, the, the op-ed pages... And yeah, it's it's interesting to see what's what's happened. Where like I realized recently, like yeah, I've been I've been read, uh, and I, I was talking to some friends about this. Yeah, I've been read the op-ed pages of you know whatever outlets in a while, and they say like yeah, I don't either. It's like you know, it's, there's too many good Substacks now, and it seems like yeah, every every couple of weeks I see another one of uh, some like talented uh, writer or young person or whatever who's um yeah producing interesting content, and you know a lot of it is kind of rough around the edges, and you know that's just how it goes when you're kind of young and you don't have an editor, but there's like this raw energy there that you don't see you know because when you when you write for for uh like media outlets like there's just like a lot of interference and a lot of edit editorializing and a lot of just um like what is like sanitizing it to the point where it just like fits this sort of corporate mold of whatever they want their their publication to be, and so yeah, the ideas are just like maybe maybe the writing is better in some ways but the idea just gets a little bit watered down yeah i think editors are still underrated but you know like it doesn't make up for like it's you can you can make a jewel shine but you can't make garbage shine right you know like garbage in garbage out mm-hmm. so yeah you like what the New York Times op-ed page is selecting for, and of course there are exceptions, and you know by definition uh, they're exceptional, right? They're they're very rare. Uh, but what the New York Times just on average selects for is just so uninteresting and orthodox, and orthodox in denial of reality, right? It's just like. It's not adding value. (laughs) This is something that's, like, very, very notable, right? Is that, like, when you have, like, status 
institutions that this, I think this is actually still my most liked tweet ever. Uh, it's which which is not a lot by by my standards. I don't have that many followers, but it's something like a world with a lot of moral panics where your rights are still protected is actually an excellent one because it basically just sorts out all of the conformists and people who you have to ignore, right? Like anyone who like this is this is like my like super. You know, we were talking about this earlier, right? Like the conservative case or like conservative case or abortion or whatever, right? Like the best case for like pro-wokeness is that wokeness is like such a powerful attractor of all of the useless social climbers that if you're going to build an organization, it just makes it that much easier to like filter out useless social climbers from your organization. Like you're building like a tech startup, right? You can you can just kind of know who not to hire or, or even better yet, you can kind of like select them out for you right? Hire like a semi-controversial person, right? Like hire like C- Steven Pinker or something, right? And then like all of the kind of useless social climbers <laughs> will just like naturally select themselves out. It's, it's just wonderful. Is Steven Pinker semi-controversial? <laughs> is, yeah. he, is he? He's, he's, a, he's a normal academic. You know, it's funny you say you used him as an example. I, I had a, a Yeah, he's a like super convers- milk toast. That's the point. Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah, I know. I mean, I had, I had a dinner conversation. This was this was like I, this was before 2020 even or at least before the the summer of 2020 and i remember there was a yeah there was a professor who who referred to Stephen Pinker as as a center right you, you know, basically saying like you know i, I like to uh, you know expose myself to a wide variety of opinions i'll read you know center right uh, 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 researchers like like Stephen Pinker and uh, you know it's like Stephen Pinker center right like in what universe right like it, it, compared to the typical academic even compared to the typical academic I think he's probably center or maybe, I don't know nowadays maybe things are changing maybe slightly center right uh, but but compared to like the typical uh, American or even the typical uh, uh, resident of, of of Boston Massachusetts where he teaches or Cambridge Massachusetts like he's 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 definitely on the left um but you know, just the way things in academia are, that's just how it is. So um what you're saying though is interesting about how if there's uh you know, you, you if you, you can use these ideologies to to sort who's a conformist and who's not, it's sort of the the opposite of of I, I've written about this phenomenon and I I was drawing a lot of this from uh the cognitive anthropologist Pascal Boyer, who basically has argued that um, you can use like moral movements to identify who's on your side, right? Like if you if you uh, uh, highlight a morally ambiguous transgression uh, and see who sorts where, like what side of a position people take, uh, you know, Scott Alexander has referred to this as like a scissor uh, of like something that's like optimized for controversy, then you can instantly tell like who's on your team and who isn't. And some, uh, you know, cynical people can use this intentionally, like they can intentionally search for things that are that are somewhat morally ambiguous, and make it seem like the worst thing on earth and see who agrees with them, and they know who's on their team. But you're saying that you can use those, you can similarly use those kinds of events in a a different kind of cynical way to see um, who's dumb enough to fall for it, or who's really uh, a conformist to a certain kind of ideology and who's an independent thinker. And yeah, that's, that's interesting I should be too. clear. I'm not pro like introducing more wokeness to the world, right? I, I think the world would be better with less wokeness, not more. But like, 
it already exists. So use it, use it for good, right? Use it for good whenever possible. It's not really all that cynical. Uh, Mm. I mean, what do you think of, that's something that I think actually bridges very well to maybe my main criticism of UATX, which is that I think they like understate, they like underestimate the problem statement. They don't think, they think that if we just restore our kind of like 1970s liberal speech norms, that that everything's going to be fine in the end, everything's going to work out from there, and that all they need is for like people to to believe in that again. <laughs> and you know, like I have this article that I'm still trying to shop around to to some actual outlets about UATX, and there hasn't been a lot of I haven't gotten any traction with it before. But I can preview the argument here. Maybe I'll just post it on my Substack at some point. That basically, like UATX is going to do fine, and that's just because like anything new. And like slightly interesting is just such a powerful attractor for talent at this point. Like, you know, like the first like YC uh, generation was just like absurdly talented because all of the people who are willing to like randomly go out into the middle of nowhere off of off, on a whim are like self-selected to be like quite talented and ambitious that you're just going to get something like very powerful out of that. And that those startup effects are just like wonderful are just wonderful kind of like new forces of the Internet and that's going to propel UATX to pretty good places. But also that like the foundational ideology that which is like very funny, right? They they kind of t- there there's this kind of like strange uh strange duality between like insisting that they're like not not very ideological and also like this just like powerful <laughs> this like very powerful like constant expression of like basically like lowercase l liberal ideology that is like always there right that they're like always talking about and i don't know that kind of ethos i think i i don't think it's gonna like screw them over completely but i think ultimately it's going to be a limiter on them yeah i mean it it depends on yeah what you mean by not ideological i mean i guess by definition if you have a mission statement you know you could you could argue that there is an ideology or something but i mean that's sort of like lowercase liberal belief is is that um, we're not going to select for people by their ideology and you know we're not going to impose uh certain ideological requirements people aren't going to have to like express a specific dogma in order to be you know to feel welcome uh at the institution which i get you know you could always say oh, that's 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 kind of an ideology in itself or it's a political choice or something and, and in a way there's no escaping that right like there's no there's no real I, I actually don't see like a way around that if you have um, if you have standards and you have a mission, uh, inevitably, you know, there's there's going to be, uh, you know, uh, some, some something guiding that some kind of principle guiding that. And and hey, I guess, you know, it depends on the definition of an ideology, but you can call that if you want. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know if it's going to be I, I just don't know like what the like what an alternative would be. Uh, if you're if you're interested in the world of ideas, if you're interested in different kinds of thinkers, if you don't want to confine yourself to one specific uh, uh, philosophical or or political system or idea, then I think like lowercase liberalism is is really the only way to go. Um, in in terms of like having respect for all sides and actually being able to bring people together who disagree and still have like sort of a mutual implicit respect for one another. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I I guess like to some degree, I mean, I've heard some of these critiques before, and some of them kind of make sense to me, like, you know, some, like, you know, there's, there's that, what is that, 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 that saying about how, you know, every organization that isn't explicitly right wing becomes left wing over time and those kinds of things. And I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know how true that is. I, I mean, I guess like empirically, maybe like I've, I've never seen actual evidence of it, but just like observationally, like anecdotally, there seems to be some truth to that. But on the other hand, uh, you know, in terms of, yeah, if you're interested in ideas, you're just going to have to create an environment where where everyone to some degree feels feels welcome, uh, regardless of regardless of their ideology. Yeah, I think that there's. That's very funny because this is like free expression, and if you kind of co- compare that to like libertarianism, right? All of those ideas are ideas that libertarians hold as well, right? Mm-hmm. The problem that I have with kind of like lowercase l liberalism, this is something that I always say, is that like libertarianism is just like liberalism, but like better, right? It, it's just like it's just better liberalism, and the reason why it's better liberalism is that I mean. Obviously, people are highly individually different, right? There's there are extreme degrees of individual difference in many crucial traits to life, and the way that libertarians resolve that is by outsourcing it to the market, and that's like wonderful, right? Uh, I mean, there are a lot of critiques that I have of libertarianism as well. I think some things it just sucks at, right? And, and you can kind of just like look at the world, and they're like, okay, you know what? That's the cost of having a free society. It's like, okay, like that's intellectually honest. That's like a way to approach things. I think I can, I think that I can do better, but you know what, like understandable, right? Liberalism, liberalism, the thing that I always say is that like the way that liberalism looks at institutions and tries to build institutions that are agnostic to the people that make them up is like fundamentally blank slatist, right? And you have some, a lot of liberals, lowercase l liberals who uh, explicitly reject the blank slate Right, someone like Jonathan Haidt is someone who I've critiqued a lot. There, there are some recent articles on my Substack about this, where he'll basically like I think there are interviews of him saying like, yeah, there are profound kind of biological differences in like moral foundations. Right, that's some of his work, and and so we shouldn't assume that like everyone is the same. But then he'll like go and like talk about institutions in this like very sweeping like generalizing way and be like, you know, people are like this. Right. And, and he just kind of assumes that like all people when put in the same scenario are going to behave in like almost the same, if not exactly the same way in terms of like polarization and coming to better decisions. And he has this term like structural stupidity, which is basically like institutions that aren't functioning. Right. And, and he kind of makes the assertion in his Atlantic in his big Atlantic piece from a few months ago that basically like if it weren't for polarization you know the american people would be very rational about the pandemic <laughs> and you know like people do not make cost benefit analysis in so many parts of their lives people are just absurdly risk averse when it comes to anything like viruses and this is like j- just shown like repeatedly throughout history you have like the examples of like 1918 as well and and you know like the plague literally right and all of this leads you to think, like, actually, wait, no, people are just bad at things. And, like, when you assume that people are rational and you try to build institutions around that, you're just going to fail horribly. Mm-hmm. And so I think the core critique of liberalism is, like, a critique of blank slatism that, like, some liberals 
at least like auspiciously uh, uh, reject. But it's just built into so many facets of liberal thinking and why liberals think that there should be equality. When it's like arguing to equality, even equality of opportunity, right, is just absurd. Like it's just not going to happen. And it's just like you if you just try to build this, if you try to build institutions around this, you'll just run into like constant self-contradiction. And basically, like you'll meet up with reality pretty quickly. That being said, like looking at UATX, there are like some libertarian people there. There's like uh, Joe Lonsdale, uh, Mike Solana, right? I think that if if the libertarians are kind of dominant enough when these contradictions arise, like then it won't be that bad. Like libertarianism is better liberalism because they have the big red button that says let the market do it, right? And and that, that allows for a lot more inequality of opportunity to just exist in the system. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how you're, you're using these terms, you know, lowercase liberalism versus libertarianism. And then some people refer to it as like classical liberal. And yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways, I was I was sort of grouping all of those mentally in the in roughly the same category. But I mean, it's funny, because like, here, here in the UK, people will say, uh, like, like, uh, was it like lowercase conserve, like C conservative, which basically means the same thing as a lowercase liberal in the US. And, and and yeah, it's, it's sort of uh, like roughly the same thing about like you know letting letting like prizing individual freedom and letting people live their lives and yeah maybe the outcomes aren't great but but freedom is sort of the the overarching uh, uh, goal more so than anything else including happiness or well being or economic output it's like freedom is like the sort of north star above everything else um, so. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, there was there was a lot there. Uh, I I did read that 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 piece from from Jonathan Haidt, and yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a psychologist, and I sort of I I get what you're saying, and and it's um, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, like psychologists will sort of refer to human beings as you know people are like this, you know, sort of implicitly acknowledging there's a, there's a sort of an underlying human nature that we all share. But then naturally, there are sort of these individual differences in our uh, moral preferences and our personalities and our abilities in general. And so, you know, I'd be like, I, yeah, I, I think like he's when, when he makes those sweeping remarks, he's sort of uh, uh, pointing to that that shared underlying humanity or human nature that we all share, uh, rather than saying like all of us, um, you know, score equally high on the the harm and care foundation of moral foundations theory or something like that. Uh which I mean, there even there, there's a there, you know, there's there's a shared humanity in that. Like, if you administer the moral foundation scale to people, even like hardcore libertarians will still like have um, they won't score zero on the fairness foundation, for example. Even though like you know they 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 score the highest on um, what is it like the liberty oppression foundation or something like that. Uh, but but yeah, even even libertarians to some degree do care about fairness uh, uh, in in the moral foundations framework. So. Yeah, I mean that. I think that's important. And, and so, the, like the rationality and polarization. Uh, yeah, I, so in one thing that I noticed just being over here in in the UK is that you know there the the way that like the lockdowns were rolled out, the vaccine programs, and all of these things. You know, I I don't know if it's you know re- like what in what what sense that that height or or that you in your summary of Height's idea like the, the term rational do you mean like economically rational or like exactly what but but in terms of um the polarization 
right? Like I think, you know, some, some people, I'm not saying you doing this or Heidi's doing this, but you know, they say irrational, they just mean like, like po- they're just pointing generally to like political polarization towards hostility and animosity towards the other side. There was like very little of that over here where, mm. you know, the government said like, Hey, we're doing lockdowns. And there was like a little bit of uh pushback and some of the conservative media were, were, were questioning it. But generally speaking, people just sort of went along with it. And like with the vaccine rollout, people just kind of went along with it. And, um, you know, so I guess like in some sense, like I, I could imagine like for the for the political left in the US like that, that, that would be rational, meaning like that's a good thing, right? Like that's that's our that's our favorable. That's our desirable outcome is just like we implement XYZ policy and that people will just do it. And that's probably the I mean, for this specific example, maybe the political left would favor that. But there are probably other kinds of um, policies that the right would favor. And, you know, they would just uh, deem any, you know, deem the American people just going along with it to be the rational uh, move. Um, so I, maybe that was to some degree what Height was getting at is that like, you know, just just the polarization of just like this immediate um, revulsion towards obeying anything that the opposite side suggests is a good idea. I mean, it was fascinating to see the um, uh, response among the political right towards COVID in 2020, where in mid mid February, mid to late February, uh, I was speaking with people who were, uh, you know, they were basically like, you know, you, you're probably aware to some degree of this of that, like, it was sort of like this, like, tech, crypto kind of right people who were like, very early, uh, aware of like the threat of what was happening, and what was going on in, in Wuhan. And, um, and some of them were saying things like, uh, you know, the government, like the U.S. government or Western governments are like, you know, like they don't want us to know about this. Or like there was this almost like conspiratorial mindset of like, yeah, there's this deadly virus coming from China and no no one's talking about it. And like, I don't know, you, you see like a yeah, like Democrat politician. Underplayed. Yeah, it was underplayed. Yeah, was playing, you know, like, you just look masks, at like Nancy yeah. Pelosi was going to Chinatown and, you know, saying, hey, it's all good. Like you just and like, I think, yeah, Gavin Newsom in California, it was I think he was downplaying it. And so the, there was this conspiratorial thing about like, hey, like they, they don't want us to know about this. And then a month later, everything flipped. And it's like, hey, they're overplaying this. They're trying to get us to think that this is a real thing. And it's really just the flu or it's really not a big deal. And so, yeah, I mean, like that kind of um, just rapid, like whatever the other side is doing, we, we're going to take like the hard, hard edge position uh, on the opposite side. Uh, that is like kind of irrational, and I'm, you know, that's not necessarily isolated to one political side or the other. But that's just like one 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 recent example that that comes to mind was just how fast people flipped from like they're hiding it to like they're they're exaggerating it, both for sinister reasons. Yeah, and you can look at this in in both directions, right? Because it's not like it's not like left wing media is is coming to their conclusions simply based on what they observe either right it, it's also it's the same thing it's like are masks good are masks bad well it depends on what trump thinks right and it's like the opposite yeah, exactly of that. yeah, yeah. Um, i mean yeah it's, it's easy to to like look at that and say like okay there, there is this obvious problem which is like not even polarization in terms of like ideology but basically like uh just tribalism Right. Mm. I think that's like a fair critique. Like, is tribalism a problem? Would the world be better if there was just like less tribalism? Yeah. Right. But 
would the pandemic have, or like would like pandemic measures have suddenly become like much more rational and much better at balancing like the costs to people's lives like i'm i'm uh, yeah that probably not right like i think yeah it's i mean for that specific example um yeah maybe it, it, it like in terms of the uh political hostility you know, that would have been zero one way or the other, right? Like, like, I I don't know if I, I haven't read what happened in Sweden, but at least like, from what I remember of 2020, Sweden never implemented any lockdown measures. Um, and I don't know if that was controversial or not in that country. I'm just not that familiar with it. But like, if the US had gone one way or the other, like just said, we're just going to keep living our lives, or, uh, you know, we're going to go full lockdown, and people just went along with it either way. Uh, without all of the sort of political vitriol, I mean, it probably like regardless of of which way it went, it would have been like a more pleasant country to live in in some ways. But you know, I, on the other hand, I wouldn't like the the tribalism and the polarization and everything. Like, I think that just goes along with living in a in a in a free society where you know people people are free to to voice their opinions and. I don't know. I kind of like that. I mean, there is uh, maybe it's it's because I'm American or or whatever. But just like when when the state says like do X Y Z and people just like okay, I just go along with it without like challenging it in any way. Like to me, there's you know that 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 just kind of um, to me rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. So what do, what do you think? Like okay, let's go back to like the UATX like betting markets, right? Where, sure. where, where is uh where is the institution going after this? Uh, mm. Where do you see its trajectory being? Yeah, I mean, it's it's still very early. I mean, that was literally like, you know, the inaugural program this this summer. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think they're they're planning to introduce the, you know, the first class of students in 2024, maybe 2025. Um, I I think it has a good shot of, of, of succeeding. I mean, I I'm impressed with the sort of ambition and the scope of the project. And, you know, if like if between now and then we can continue to sort of raise the profile of it and, and attract interest and, you know, attract, attract talented students who are willing to, 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 you know, study there. I think it'll be, I think it'll be, I think it'll be great. I mean, you know, I think your earlier critiques, that is something that they'll have to watch out for. Uh, like in the long run, will it be able to sustain and, and, and adhere to the original vision? Right. I mean, it's interesting, you know, there's, there's a uh, you know a lot of people they've made a lot of hay out of saying like hey Harvard's motto is veritas it's truth or Yale's motto is light and truth you know what about truth that's the motto and you know that's I I don't think anyone starts an institution with saying like hey we want this to be like ideologically rigid and to to cancel people or fire people for you know holding the wrong thoughts or the wrong views or whatever and. Uh, and in some somehow like that 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 ended up happening to to uh, to those schools, right? And so, um, yeah, I don't know if like centuries from now what what the outcome will be, but at least in the short term, I'm 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 fairly confident in the project, and uh, I'm actually I'm actually very confident in it, and uh, yeah, yeah, we'll 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 see how it goes. Nice, nice. I mean, what something that was interesting to me. Oh, okay. Yeah. I should I should answer this as well. Uh, I mean, I spoke about this earlier. The most powerful thing going for it is just like the new people attractor. Once hmm. that once that wears off, once it becomes something that you know becomes 
more popular if it ever does if it ever goes like mainstream right i think you'll just get like a drop in the in the candidate quality just like right away uh but aside from that i I think that it's just yeah being a being a attractor for people who are basically just willing to take a week out of their lives and go to this thing like go to this brand new thing i think that that's that in and of itself gives it just such an already powerful way to start and i mean they at the program itself they were talking very often about just like the just like the sheer number of academics who are interested and yeah i think that there are a lot of academics who are interested in that kind of lowercase l liberal vision of just like uh yeah yeah uh, yeah there's a lot i mean i've i've had many uh just personally uh academics you know full professors that are very established in their fields privately contact me asking about uh job openings about you know the, the the yeah the future of the institution reconsidering whether they want to you know remain in their position or move and it's been yeah to me it's been actually shocking to see just like the the scale of this of just how many people are interested in this and who are you know, including people who've reached out to me who I who I didn't expect were were you know fed up with the academic system as it is or with the uh, the campus culture as it is like people who I thought were kind of on board with it but I mean you know people sometimes have to play the game where publicly they are fully on board with the uh, you know with the uh, with the message and then privately they have some some concerns so that shocked me too so I think there's actually maybe a larger a larger market than than many people are are are. Um, uh, predicting in terms of yeah, not just the students, but but the kind of caliber of professor that this place can attract too. Yeah, I, and I know you can't really like say. I don't know. Like, is there is there anything you can tell us about that? Right. I don't know how much you can say. You can say nothing if you want. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's as far as yeah, that's as far as I can probably go for now. Um, but yeah, I'll I'll just say that. Uh, yeah, I've been I've just been very impressed with uh, with the people who are yeah just generally involved with the program who've who've inquired about it about the institution and its future. So yeah, I mean, I yeah just just the way that it's rolled out. I mean, just the idea of starting a university is so bold and ambitious. And uh, you know, I, I think like you know even if you don't necessarily agree with it or. I mean, yeah, I know that they, it gets its fair share of ridicule and whatever on social media and stuff. But just like, uh, you know, if you're so 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 if you're like on the hard left, say, uh, I, I almost want to say, like, shouldn't you want this to succeed just so that you can have like a uh, like a model for like if you wanted to start your own kind of university with your own vision of whatever it might be, whatever sort of uh, political or ideological vision you might have, you know, if you think that UATX is, is political or, or whatever, and, and a lot of its critics do, um, you know, I think you would almost want it to see just so that you could have a model for whatever kind of institution building you yourself might want to, uh, to get involved in. But, but, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's hard and a lot of people don't want to do it. And I think there's probably a lot of, yeah, so, you see, you're kind of assuming that. that people are like rational here, right? Like that, that people <laughs> are like rationally assessing like what this means. Uh, and I don't think mm-hmm. very many people are doing that. Um, but yeah, I, I do think, I do think that is a reason to be pretty optimistic, uh, actually, like something that something that I thought about just now is like, you know, we, we talked about this a bit last time, right? What's the number one? What's the number one utility of a university nowadays? It's like it's like the dating pool, right? Oh, interesting. And 
Yeah. So what do you think like the self-selection effects of UATX, like the first, both the first mover stuff and also like the self-selection for people who are interested in politics? Like, what do you think that does to the dating market? I mean, it's interesting. So I, I was, uh, I mean, I've talked to multiple people who put out like intellectually interesting content. And so this is like outside of UATX, outside of the university system, but just people who are like producing interesting content. And it could be like the circles I'm in or the people I interact with, but inevitably, uh, people will tell me that like their audience is primarily male, including women, like women who produce like intellectually engaging content outside of the university system will say like they have a, like they're shocked, like the, the, like how they have a mostly male audience, my stuff too. Right. So, so most, um, most psychology majors, most psychology PhDs now, like yeah, newly minted PhDs are, are women. But then when I look at like my readership or the people who tend to write me, like it's 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 like I mean, there's there's a fairly large uh, female readership, but it is like predominantly male. And this is interesting to me. And so. So, yeah, that was this was something that I was actually um, uh, sort of observing at, at UATX was I mean, I don't know what the exact gender breakdown was, but it was probably like 70 percent male, 30 percent female. And uh, it was exa- it was exactly 20 w- percent female for. Our oh, was it? It oh was, really? Yeah, it was eight out of it was eight out of forty. <laughs> Why yeah. do you know? Were you counting? Did you count this? Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. That's we of you know, course that's, did count yeah, this because we were interested. Uh, not yeah. necessarily you, but like some of us are interested in setting yeah. up the UATX uh, 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 matchmaking service. You know? Oh man. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, it's well. So so something like that is interesting because like it it does, you know, if. So gender ratios matter. I can't remember specifically what we talked about the last time I was on on, on the podcast, but you know, gender ratios matter, right? And so if you're if you're a young woman and you're interested in finding uh, a suitable partner, uh, going to a place where there are way more men than women is actually very much in your favor because you know the the, the scarcer sex uh, gets to exercise greater choice over who they get to be with. So, you know, if, if UATX continues to be more male, which wouldn't necessarily surprise me given like, yeah, just the way things are going, I think like uh, on the one hand, like the university system in general is just skewing more female. There was that, you know, that big article in the Wall Street Journal last year about how I think by 2030, the university is going to be like s- more than 60% female. I think right now it's already at 60-40 uh, female to male grads, but by 2030, it's supposed to be like, I don't know, 65% or something, something crazy like that. More and more uh or fewer and fewer guys are are attending universities and so if you can find a university that actually has more men than women like that is a you know that's that's a very uh unique uh environment to be in so you know that that might that might be that might uh serve uh the female students uh very well the male students less so but they it might be made up for by the fact that they're in a you know a more sort of uh uh you know, academically free environment, which is on average more attractive to uh, young men than young women. So, you know, there's there, these kind of trade-offs involved there, right? Where maybe maybe the female students, uh, you know, they 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 find more more uh, appealing partners, and the guys are in an environment where they can speak more freely. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> these are just speculations, but but yeah, this is my my first. Yeah, <laughs> just off. I, I think the, off the cup. This 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 makes sense to me. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, I mostly it's, agree. It's, yeah, I think. Well, well, yeah, I mean, our, yeah, it, it, it's. Um, I think, yeah, it's it's hopeful for 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 both sides in in that regard, both both sexes, and generally, um, 
yeah, generally optimistic, I think, for the for the social scene, too. Yeah, people, I mean, the students were, were fun, too. Like, just, yeah, the whole vibe, I thought, at the, at the, at the uh, summer program was, 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 uh, was great. Yeah, I don't know, like, I mean, I, I guess there's no way of avoiding this in, in the personal way as well, right? What do you think of, what do you think of liberalism as an ideology after, after, after this experience, you know? Like, what do you yourself think of it? I mean, I never know what people. So, so you know, I, I mentioned this before that I, I'm not like super into politics. Like, I, I guess I have to be interested in it just because, like, that's just the world we're in now. And if you're in like the world of ideas and in the university system and stuff, it's just sort of taken over everything. So, I don't really know what people mean by liberalism. If they mean like, uh, like wokeness, do they mean, or are they the same? Because I've heard no, this argument. Usually, like I mean, liberalism. Like lowercase L, I mean, lowercase all liberalism, like the yeah. Fuki, in the Fukuyama sense, you know, like equality yeah. uh, or like freedom plus equality, which of course makes makes no sense in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, those are contradictory. Like, yeah. I mean, even Stephen Pinker has made that point that those are those are contradictory yeah. because if you have a free society, people will inevitably be uh, unequal. I mean. You've, you know, you've probably read some of Robert Nozick's stuff. He was a a, yes. a, a well-known libertarian uh, philosopher at Harvard. And, you know, he had that uh, the Wilt Chamberlain thought experiment, which I think like is a, it's, it's sort of like a neat, intuitive um, example of like how like free choice can inevitably lead to like gross inequality. And I, if, I might be I'm going to paraphrase this. I might be getting some of the details wrong, but he says like imagine a society of 100 people and everyone has $10. You know, they start out the same. Everyone starts out exactly the same position, $10. And then one person in this community of 100 discovers that he has the basketball skills of I think what he was writing is like Wilt Chamberlain. And uh, the other people are willing to pay a dollar to see him play basketball. And so now this guy has uh, what is it? $109 and everyone else has $9. But everyone made free choices, right? Like one person just happened to have been born with this unique ability that everyone else wanted to pay to to see and benefit from and experience, you know, the the, the gains from that. And so now you have uh, one guy who has more money than everyone else combined. Uh, did something go wrong here? Is that bad? Uh, sh- you know, should, you know, should Will Chamberlain be forced to give all the money back or something? And, um, and so, you know, in that sense, like, uh, you know, whatever, like I, all of this is to say that like the whole idea of like freedom and inequality, uh, there, 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 there's always this tension involved, but you know, on the other hand, I guess like I, I am, um, what, uh, if, if freedom leads to like e- extreme levels of, of like poverty or, or people living in like truly destitute circumstances, that's, that's not ideal either. Um, but yeah, I mean, w- when you say like lower L liberalism, I think like it's, it's at least in terms of like the way we were describing it earlier about like taking an impartial approach to different kinds of ideas of not putting an ideological straitjacket on anyone of letting people sort of freely debate and discuss and give everyone uh, an, an equal shot at, uh, you know, being like, I mean, I, I guess like the whole equality of opportunity thing, like I, I actually don't know what people mean by that either. Um, because like, if you take it seriously, it's impossible, but at least as an ideal or as like, 
you know, I think a very simple uh, way to do this, and, and this is like a personal example, but I remember when I was in high school, I didn't take the SAT because it was too expensive. And I didn't know that there was um, like a waiver that you could fill out to get like a reduction or to take it for free. I think like those are like very simple ways to like increase equality of opportunity would be I know you mentioned before, like, you know, just give everyone IQ tests all the time. Well, this is like a case where like, yes. to me, it's very straightforward, <laughs> where every, you know, 16 year old in America should be given a free SAT. Right. Like that's like a, a I think that benefits the individuals that benefits the society that benefits the universities of like just knowing like who has uh, underlying ability and they may not have otherwise known about it because they they couldn't have afforded the test or they didn't know about it or they were just the kind of student who was like very low on conscientiousness and wouldn't have sought it out on their own. So they have to be forced to take it. Um, so yeah, in, in that case, like we can sort of increase equality of opportunity in those sort of like narrow limited senses. So, so yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that makes sense. Like less, less inequality is achievable, but like full equality of opportunity. That's, that's just like kind of absurd. Uh, yeah. I, the other thing I guess is that like, there, there's a lot of like, especially recently, there's a lot of like punching right from like Barry Weiss. Right. And and her speech is also like public now, so we can kind of talk about it, the speech that she gave at UATX. Right. So I don't know, just like what do you think of this? Like, what do you think of the kind of um I don't wanna say like because I don't think I don't think it's bad faith, but like Okay, how do I phrase this? I should have actually workshopped this before. I don't really know how to phrase this beforehand. The kind of like the critique of the right wing that is like very kind of, I guess the most neutral way to say this is that just accepts the premises of the conventional narrative, right? That, that accepts the premises of the kind of left wing critique, let's say of the right wing. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's good for, for in general, each, each side to have some standards for what they're willing to, to tolerate. So, yeah, I mean, I think the the right does a well. Dep- yeah, I guess if it depends on your perspective, does a better or does a worse job. But I think it does a better job of it in that they are willing to to sort of like set out their standards in advance and, and not, uh, yeah, not let the 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 hardest edges take over. I think like the way that the left has kind of done more so. I mean, people will disagree with me on this. I think you know we'll bring up Trump or something like that. But I mean, like. You know, I, I just, yeah, I think it's okay for for people who are um, influential and prominent and who have some, um, yeah, just just some level of social social uh, 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 visibility to be willing to to say like what what their standards are and what they're willing to to tolerate and like just you know what's what's good for. Um, for the movement or for whatever their vision happens to be. Uh, I don't like the whole like canceling anyone or trying to like get anyone fired or anything like that. But I think it's, it's okay to like publicly have standards and say that like, this is what we believe. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's complex. I know there's like ongoing debates. I think on the left, there are these debates too. I have some, some liberal friends here who, who also like, don't like the respectability politics or like tone policing or whatever, like whatever language they use. And so, you know, I, I, yeah, that, that's basically my 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 main point here is that, like, I think it's OK to have some standards uh, for whatever your political group is. 
Uh, but you shouldn't like try to ruin anyone's life or try to get anyone fired if they happen to like step outside the bounds of that. Yeah, the, the thing that I worry about the most is not really like it, it's not like uh, um, the problem is not like critiquing people, right? Like a critique is fine. It's like the specific critique that just like assumes, I think, just assumes a lot of the kind of. Uh, assumptions about kind of the populist right to be true and i i mean like of course that's why i don't want to call it bad faith because like you can genuinely believe this right and and i know many people who are like reasonably smart people who genuinely believe this that like the basically that the republican party like functions the same way as the democratic party and that you know if you have a bunch of extremists in the republican party then they'll work their way into the into the like quote unquote elite they'll work their way into basically like the activist class and that they're going to like they're going to uh, be like woke people but for the right right like all the stop the steal people are going to be like woke people but for the right and it's like i mean I, richard hanania is one of the best people writing on this right that's actually just not the way Repu- the republican party works the Rep- republican party is and always has been basically like a fundamentally elitist party where the kind of populism is used to advance like center-right libertarian economics mostly. And, you know, like there's going to be like populist noises, but that basically like they're exactly that, right? They're noises. Hmm. Interesting. And yeah, like, if you yeah. just look at it empirically, mm-hmm. like if you just look at it empirically, like you just look at the Trump presidency, that's exactly what it is. Right. Hmm. It is, it's not even like that's like kind of what it is or that's mostly what it is. That was completely what it was. Hmm. Yeah. And just like I mean, people it's... not understanding like what the Republican Party is, like people who are lifelong Democrats going and thinking like, oh, man, the exact same principles must apply in the Republican Party as apply in the in the Democratic Party. It's like, man, like to be fair, like I also thought this, right? I also thought this long, long time ago and I wasn't paying attention to politics, but I think you pay attention just a little bit and this just becomes like an absurd assertion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 uh, I mean, these, these, yeah, these are interesting questions. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, at that, at that level of like, you know, implementing policies and so forth. I mean, I, we're mostly talking about sort of, uh, people who, who are, um, what pe- people who who are like journalists or academics or people who uh you know uh, write and and work in the, in in the abstract sort of intellectual world of ideas and so forth and and communicate to to, to broad audiences and yeah i mean i think it's like part of your part of your job is to yeah have have your viewpoints and to to argue for them and to say that yeah certain certain things are sort of beyond the pale or outside the scope of what you you know what 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 you think the movement should be i mean this is i mean that that's constantly gone on and so yeah i mean i guess there's um yeah like i'm fine maybe with there's doing an asymmetry it to some degree there. i just think that here it's doing it i think it's yeah. just being done incorrectly right like this is also part yeah. of like what I, when what i say when i say like they're underestimating the problem like you kind of have to be friends with right wingers here. Like there's just no way of avoiding it. And like, especially like the kind of intellectual core of, of the kind of populist, right. I think like, yeah, like there are things that I disagree with them on, right. They, they really don't like libertarians and like a lot of stuff. Libertarians, I think get much more correct than the mainstream or than the populist. Right. But also 
yeah, I, I just think people like look at this and they just completely understate the problem. They don't really, and this is like something that I I've been kind of like doomer about recently about basically how many layers of deception and like um how do i put this in like a how do i put this in a nonpartisan way actually no why am i even trying to put this in a nonpartisan way like the amount of institutional capture that is specifically targeted or like specifically concentrated within the kind of like institutional, like what I call, right. What I've called on this show, the, um, the, the patronage left, right. Which includes woke people, but also includes the kind of like consultant class, right. Like that power center is just, there's just so many more institutions and so many more just like complete, like the amount of like media power that it has. Right. Which is like very, which is like a much more subtle than I think most people expect it to be because there are many layers of that media power, right. That it's not just all exposed, not all like just MSNBC, right. They don't all kind of jump on every problem that they want to attack. Right. And, and of course it's not like, it's not that loosely co- or that's not that like closely coordinated. Of course, this is something that is emergent. Right. Uh, the amount of, the amount of work that that has to be done, the amount of like institution building that that has to be done to remove like all significant influence of that on American politics. I think if you like take that seriously, it's you, you can't really be like, it, it doesn't make sense to be concerned about like the various populist noises at this point. Right. And this is of course like different from what I've thought before. And I think that's because like I've gotten more information. Yeah. I guess it depends on what your priorities are and yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone's, everyone's assessment of where the risk is and where the dangers are going to be. Yeah. They're going to be different. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really know like what what more to, to to say about this. I mean, everyone's just going to have like their own subjective views about like where the serious threats are, or I mean, yeah, and, and everyone has like different, um, yeah, just 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 sort of competing understandings about like what 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 their priority should be. Um, but anyway, Brian, uh, I do have to jump off now. Uh, but this is yeah, this has been this has been a good conversation. It's been interesting, and and I enjoyed hearing your yeah your 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 perspectives on on UATX and and everything else. Yeah, do you want to answer the last question of the show again? Uh, what's the last question? Uh, what is something that's too much chaos and needs more order, and something oh, that has too man. much order and needs more chaos? I don't even yeah. remember what I said <laughs> last at time. It again. <laughs> What did I say? Last? I'm probably going to give the same. I don't even remember what you it is. Said, like, but I dating just, markets yeah. last time has too much, oh, really? too much chaos. Too much. Yeah, and I mean, that's, I forgot what you said for order. Okay. Well, okay, so so too much chaos. Yeah, dating. I'll, I'll stick with dating markets on that one. Too much order and needs <laughs> you more have to chaos. Get a new one. Oh man, I mean, I, I, I yeah, I don't know if I could think of one on the spot, but but but, but for the order and needs <laughs> oh, more man. chaos. Just sticking with the theme of the show, I mean, you could, yeah, one could argue that the, yeah, the kind of university system, the credentialing system, it's all, it's all like very formalized, 
the yeah the expectations around it the campus culture is is quite stifling and you know i guess you could call that order or you know too much order in some sense so yeah uh maybe maybe the uh the higher education system means a little more a little more chaos at least in the sense of uh you know new new institutions so i'll stick with that awesome uh thanks for coming on and uh yeah. good luck on whatever you're doing next all right thanks brian that was our episode with rob henderson if you enjoyed the show Something that maybe I didn't say this time, but something that you can always do is share it with a friend and let people know. There are many people in the world who would take your recommendation well over mine, who probably haven't even heard of me, and you can make their life better while also helping the show as well. If you like the show, then odds are at least one of your friends do too. And that's a great way to help. You can also subscribe to the show, and we'll have another great episode for you next week. See you then.